I'm Denise. I'm the Scottish one. And she's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise, the English one. And she's a fiction editor. And together, we're the Editing Podcast. Hello, and welcome to our first episode of Season 2 of the Editing Podcast. It's great to be back. We've missed you all. And I've missed chatting with Denise. Actually, that's not true. We haven't stopped nattering. (laughs) We've just stopped recording that lunacy for a while, didn't we? (laughs) Yeah, there has been a lot of chit-chat while we get this season ready. But it's so lovely to be back in the saddle with our mics. We've even upped the sound quality, haven't we? By introducing a new recording system. Anyway, tell everyone what we're talking about this week, Louise. Sure. So this time around, we're looking at preparing your file for editing because... Whether you're doing your own editing or hiring a pro, there are things you can do and not do to make life easier. So the tips we're going to be offering here are based on our own experiences, not saying there aren't other ways of doing things. Yeah, that's right. Because the thing is, we've seen it all and we know as well as anyone what the impact on time and money is when a book files become, shall we say, overcomplicated. (laughs) Yeah. So the first piece of advice is not to to design your book's interior before editing. Design is something you want to focus on afterwards. Um, I don't know about you, Denise, but I've received numerous book files over the years that look beautiful until I destroy all that gorgeous layout (laughs) with my 14,000 edits. And it's heartbreaking, actually, because editors know how much time it takes to format a book and make it look lovely. It absolutely is heartbreaking. I I really feel for authors who've put in all that effort because I'm going to have to go back and tell them they've probably wasted hours. Uh, What I will say is that if you're creating a book that's ready for being printed, design will come into play later at proofreading stage. Page proofs are absolutely perfect for the proofreader. Right. And that's because the proofreader can check not only your spelling, punctuation and grammar, but also the layout. They can make sure all your page numbers are chronological, all um, all the different elements of the text are formatted consistently, and that the page margins are consistent, that the right fonts have been used and are appearing as you intended, and that any images or tables and figures are in the right place. Yeah, and just so we're clear, page proofs are either hard copy or PDF versions of the book that are laid out exactly as they will appear in the final printed version. Yeah. And that means that, in effect, you're looking at pretty much what a reader would see if they pulled your book off the shelf once it's been published. We talked about that in season one, episode eight um, of the editing podcast. So if you want more detail on that, just take a listen. Yeah. And I think you included a link to your free proofreading checklist in that, didn't you, Louise? Yeah, I did. I think um, I can put that again in the show notes here just for people who want it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, with copy editing... And if you're proofreading raw text files for digital books, it's a different story. And that's what we're going to focus on in this episode. And if you follow these tips, you'll produce a file that's editor friendly. And this is all good news because it means less work for you, not more. So um, you get to focus on the text, on what your writing's doing rather than on what it looks like. So let's talk first about the type of file to edit in. Most professional editors work in Microsoft Word. And that's because despite the old glitch, it's still the best word processing software on the planet. It so is. is, I mean, it's got a stack of onboard tools that help you style all the elements of your text consistently. And you can quickly locate potential problems that might need fixing. So I'm thinking about the styles palette. I absolutely adore that. It saves me so much time. Yeah, me too. But how about the fact there's also grammar, spelling and readability tools as well, which you can find in the check document function in the proofing section of the review tab. 
I actually rate the onboard thesaurus in Word too. Um, but my favourite function, apart from the styles gallery, is track changes. <laughs> oh yeah, it's <laughs> it is a must use at the editing stage. I see, isn't it just? So track changes does what it says on the tin. It allows you and your editor to track, review, and accept or reject every change that's made in a document. And if you're working with a professional editor, that means that you, the author, stay in control, even though someone else is changing your file. Just good old peace of mind. Also, Word's compatible with a host of macros that complement the editor's brain and eye, and that means they can add an extra level of quality control to the edit and do that efficiently. And we're going to dedicate an entire episode to our favourite free macros that any writer or editor can use to polish a Word file, so watch out for that soon. Um, one other thing I'd like to mention is that even if you've written your book in a different program, so something like Scrivener, Google Docs or Apple Pages, I still think it's worth transferring the text to a Word file before you get down to self-editing at sentence level. I'd even go so far as to say it's essential if you're working with a professional editor. They'll do a better job, full stop. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And in the Editing Bytes section later, we've got a great tool for you if you want a really affordable way to improve your working knowledge of Word and how to get the best out of it when writing and editing. Yeah, yeah. So our next tip concerns the number of files your content's written in. We strongly recommend that unless you've agreed with your book editor to work serially, and by that I mean on a chapter by chapter basis, you should really create one master file that contains the full text of your book. Absolutely. If you send them 60 distinct chapters, all they'll do is merge them into one file um, after they've had a, a stiff gin <laughs> to ease yes. the frustration. And I think it's important to say here that this isn't me and Denise being a couple of grouchers, honestly. It's just that we want to ensure that your book is consistent. And that means being able to search easily for what's not falling into line. Yeah. So in fiction, Louise will be looking to ensure that Catherine with an initial K and R-Y-N on the end doesn't become Catherine with a C and an I-N-E ending. When editing, you can use the find and replace tool for that kind of thing. But there are free and paid for Word plugins that can help you identify problems like this efficiently. But they're only effective if you're working in a single file. Yeah, and Denise might want to run a check to make sure bulleted lists or the capitalization of headings uh, is consistent at each level in a nonfiction books, um, book. And there are tools to help you do this, like our beloved Perfect It. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Tools, tools to help you do that efficiently if you're working on a single file. Yeah, yeah. The same applies to ensuring that the various elements of your text are formatted consistently, like you said about the bullet points. Um, for example, it's conventional for the first paragraph in a chapter or section to not be indented. And you can use the styles palette to define the appearance with one click. And uh, there's a link to a tutorial on creating and using styles in the show notes. So let's talk about fonts. Um, so you might have decided to use an unconventional font for your book interior <laughs> and you're perfectly entitled to use any font you choose. Just spare a thought for your editor's eyes or your own. We recommend using something like Times New Roman size 14. Uh, that's because it's a serif font, which means it's easy on the eye. It means it's got those serif fonts have got the little, I don't know how to describe it, Denise. What, what is little, it called when you've got little tails? Little tails. Little tails. Or, yeah. yeah. I'm, sure yeah. There's a, I'm sure there's a proper word for it. It probably is, like, like the G in <laughs> struggle and um, uh, the, yeah. uh, the tail of a Y. Well, so, they're descenders, aren't they? There's oh, 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 descenders, yes. Descenders and descenders, but I don't know about the wee flicky bits on the other bits. Oh, yeah, like flicky on the bits. Yeah, flicky bits on the top of letters. <laughs> Yeah, oh, there is a word for that. <laughs> <laughs> 
so uh, yeah. Time New Roman is a serif font, which means it's easy on the eye, and that means editing is less of a struggle, which in turn means fewer things will be missed. Yeah, because some fonts are just awful to check. I mean, they might be beautiful or fun to look at. So things like um, Chiller, Old English Text, Blackadder, but they're a recipe for disaster at editing stage, and they right. should be should be used sparingly anyway. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah. My my logo is serendipity, and sometimes I try and I use it in other things and think I can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. What, what might work for one sort of type of text doesn't work for another. That's yeah, that's a really good point. Thinking about what you're trying to do with that particular font. Mm-hmm. And um, some ser- sans serif fonts like Ariel, for example, and I'm pronouncing it Ariel. Oh, Ariel. <laughs> John, John Asperian. I'm sure John Asperian said he's a, a, a technical writer pal of ours. And, and I'm sure he said that um, Ariel is not how you pronounce it. Oh, so, everyone um, I know says Ariel. And I, I just like think of the Little Mermaid when I think yeah. of this. <laughs> OK, let's a- call it Ariel. <laughs> Ariel. Ariel sounds a bit like, um, I don't know. Affected. Yeah, a bit pretentious. Sorry, John. Sorry, John. No, I'm not saying John's pretentious. I'm just saying (laughs) saying Ariel sounds a bit... "Hmm." Yes, and some sans serif fonts like Ariel, for example, don't always render capital I's and lowercase L's distinctly. So I've had several thrillers come across my desk featuring agents from those well-known intelligence agencies, ML5 and ML6. (laughs) So... (laughs) Next up is colours. When authors start getting creative with colours, it can severely impede um, our ability to edit accurately. It's so true. We recommend that you just keep it simple and use black text on a white page. Again, it's about readability. Uh, There's no doubt that white text on a coloured block of text can stand out, especially in brochures and web content. And the contrast is visually appealing, but it's really challenging if you're editing for consistency and accuracy. I've had experience of that with fiction. Um, a couple of years ago, I was asked to copy edit a, a fabulous book for an indie author. And the pages were black and the text was pale pink. It was really effective and branded the book perfectly. But I begged the author for permission to change the file during editing. He was fine about it, but um, he'd still spent time setting up that design. And it was wasted because I just undid it and changed it back to black yeah. and white. Yeah, and the thing is that if we're confronted with quirky stuff like that, we have to just work more slowly because it's a strain. And that means, yep, higher price possibly. Yeah. Honestly, stick to black and white, um, black text on a white page when editing and you will save time and money. So let's talk now about paragraphs. Um, Open up most fiction books and you're likely to see all the paragraphs indented with the exception of the first one in a chapter or section. Only those will not be indented. We can't re- recommend strongly enough using the ribbon in Word to create those indents. Then use your styles palette to define the paragraph style so that you can easily switch your text from indented to full out with one click. Yeah, yeah. Please, please, please don't use tabs. You'll just end up with an unholy mess if you're publishing digitally. But there's another issue. If you decide to change the size of an indent, you can simply modify the style with a few clicks and your entire file will be reformatted automatically in seconds. Yeah. If you use individual tabs to create your indents, you'll have to change all one billion of them individually. <laughs> not good. So not good. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, you can find out how to do this in the in the resource we've linked to in the show notes. So let's talk about spacing now. Um, 
At line and copy editing stage, don't worry about how many pages your text covers. Instead, focus on spacing your lines so that the text is easy to read. In words, setting the line spacing at 1.25 or 1.5 works really well for a font size of 12 or 14. Yeah, and if you're wondering how to do this, the line spacing function can be found by right clicking on the text and selecting paragraph and a window will pop open and make sure you're in the indents and spacing tab and then you can amend the line spacing field there. Yeah. Our next file prep tip is defining headings. Now, in fiction, this will be chapter headings and perhaps some date marker subheads if your story jumps around a little. Yeah, but in nonfiction, this is an even bigger issue. Mm. You might have three or four different heading styles in addition to figure, table and image headings. Um, so if you use Word's styles palette and assign various inbuilt header styles, you'll ensure consistency right across your book file. And you can even modify these styles as you see fit. So for chapter titles, you can even um, ensure that one automatically starts on a fresh page. Yeah. So to do that, right click on the heading style, select modify, then format, then paragraph. And a window will open again. Make sure you're in the line and page breaks tab and then check the page break before box. That's so handy, isn't it? Uh, and uh. why is that useful? Well, it means that you won't need to hit the return button 30 plus times <laughs> to get the cursor to the top of the next page when you begin a new chapter. Yeah, and you'll create a really quick way of ensuring that all your chapters or sections are listed chronologically because they'll all appear in a list in Word's navigation menu. If your chapters are numbered, any problems will be easy to identify. Yeah, I rely on that navigation pane yeah. so heavily when I'm um, editing um, non-fiction stuff. It's it's a real bonus to be able to see at a glance how everything's structured. And you can also shift chapters around in the navigation menu, can't you? You, you can, that's mm. right. Just like you just click and drag. It's dead easy. It makes it makes everything so simple to move about if you're restructuring without yeah. worrying that you've left something behind, which yeah. is a, yeah. a real bonus. Yeah. So how about page numbers? Well, in raw text files, there's no need for page numbers or other headers and footers. These are things that need to be added at design stage, even for printed books. And Word records the page numbers in the bottom left hand corner of the screen of a PC. And that's what an editor will refer to if they need to direct your attention to a specific page. And there's another thing. If you plan to upload a final version of your file for um, ebook creation, your page numbers will need to be removed anyway. Mm. So that's another reason to add them in at the design stage for your printed book. Yeah, yeah. Shall we talk about section breaks now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in nonfiction, section breaks are often accompanied by headings to indicate what the new content's about. But in fiction, they serve a different function. So why do I let you chime in on that one, Louise? Yeah, that's right. So in fiction, we might use section breaks to indicate a shift in scene or a change in viewpoint. I'm not going to bang on about narrative viewpoint here because that's a topic all of its own. Um, now, what I will say, though, is it's it's perfectly acceptable just to have a line space. And that's how I often see it done in fiction, unless the break comes at the end of a page. But the problem is that in raw text, um, it's not always clear to a third party interior designer, proofreader or copy editor that a break is intended if there's only a line space. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's because sometimes a writer will accidentally hit the return button twice. So if you don't want anyone, including yourself, to spend time working out whether the break is intended rather than focusing on the flow of your text um, and the errors that might need correcting or, or the, the layout that might need tweaking, I think it's useful to mark those section breaks. And mm -hmm. I usually use something like three asterisks to 
denote mine. But um, you can always use the find and replace button to locate or change um, the asterisks at the end and, and change them to something else at design stage. Yeah, that's really sensible advice, actually. And it's for the same reason that using word styles palette to actually style a heading is a good idea. It removes ambiguity. Yeah, that's right. So how about pictures and images? The fiction I work on is usually adult stuff. I mean, the readership is adult, not the content. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do edit adult themed you material do, too, yeah. <laughs> um, on occasion. But if you're writing, say, a children's book, there might well be images. And of course, in nonfiction, there are often images to consider. So what do you recommend doing with these editing stage, Denise? Right. So my recommendation is this. If your book includes photos, drawings, tables or figures, I'd suggest putting those in a separate folder and queuing them into the file instead. You mean by queuing? OK, so what I do is I put each image in a separate file in an artwork folder and I name the files in a logical structure, for example, image 01, image 02, etc. I label the images, tables and figures separately. So table 01 and 2, figure 01 and 2, so that I can easily keep track of the different types. One tip is start your file numbers with a 0 or 00, zero so that when you get to 10 or 100, it doesn't jump to the top of your file list. Oh, that's a really good idea. I like to see my files in the right order, and yeah, it really throws yeah. me out of 10 and 11 at the start. Yeah, I, I like, yeah. you know. Really good point. Yeah, so then in the Word document, what I'll do is I'll place an instruction for the designer that will say something like, insert image 03 here and put that in square brackets and that's a cue for them to take the image in the file of that name and insert it in the design book. Now it may not be exactly at the point I've queued it depending on the layout and the flow of the text but they know it's to be as near there as possible and I assign these instructions a style in the palette they're usually red and then square brackets so that the designer can spot them. Yep that makes sense. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons it's a good idea is simply because images are so chunky. They increase the size of a book massively. And that means every time you save during the editing process, it takes longer to refresh the screen. Um, and and when you're a third party's editing, that can save all these little seconds of time add up. And that time costs money, as, as uh, we're always saying. Yeah. And, it, and it also means that words much less likely to give up the ghost and crash under the weight <laughs> of all those images. Yeah, yeah. And that is one of the worst time editors that an editor has to deal with. Are you listening, Word? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And I know this might sound a bit daft, but regular saving is essential, isn't it? Because yeah. if there's a power cut because the TV exploded or the dog's been chewing your power cable, that can end up with 30 minutes or so of editing time being lost. And yeah. that's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And when it comes to emailing a file full of high res images to an editor or designer, it will be so huge that they'll have to use an external cloud-based transfer service. And that file could take an hour to load up unless, you know, unless they have rubbish broadband speed in which case it'll take two or three hours you know all about that Louise don't you because that's the price you pay for being able to see pheasants and deer in your garden <laughs> yeah poor me <laughs> the wildlife's great but you know internet not so but also if you keep all your lovely images in the text file during editing any amendments deletions and additions to the text will cause your carefully placed pickies to shift into spaces you didn't intend I guess absolutely I Word is not designed, you know, for design and, and for image placement like that. So one correction or change and everything moves. So it's it's much better to leave image placement to the interior design stage. 
So why don't we talk now about tables of contents? This is another yep. element um, of a book file that I think writers tend to create too early. Because, mm, yeah, there's a good chance that a chunk of your page numbers and some of the chapter titles will be wrong by the time the editing has finished. If you're working in Word and um, and you created your table of contents in that software by the references tab, then you will be able to update this reasonably quickly. But if you go for a manual option, you could be creating so much work for yourself or your editor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because when the book's interior is designed, everything will change again. And that could add up to maybe an extra hour's work, which, again, is just money down the drain. Yeah, I mean, you still work for Publishers Denise, and I used to. And I don't know about you, but I can remember proofreading a table of contents on design page proofs that had been through multiple rounds of editing. And the table of contents was always wrong in several places. Yeah, absolutely. Same for me. So sort out your table of contents before you do your final design, not at copy editing stage. Yeah. Now let's talk about indexing. Um, we're going to um, get a professional indexer on the editing podcast at some stage to talk about indexing. So we won't dig into too much detail here today, other than to say, just please don't create a manual index for your book at editing stage. Yeah. Think about this. If the page numbers against the table of contents get messed up during copy editing, the damage to an index is nothing short of catastrophic. Absolutely. It's just not worth thinking about. And it's not just the page numbers, but it's the actual indexed entries too. The editing might lead to changes in spelling or compound hyphenation or capitalization as well. And some key terms and names will have been removed or changed or added. And none of these changes will be reflected in your carefully crafted index. I agree. I mean, just indexing should really ideally come after proofreading, certainly not before or during copy editing stage. Now, all the suggestions we've offered for prepping your book file are just that. There isn't one way to do anything when it comes to writing and publishing. But we're telling you what we've learned in our combined what? I don't, know. I don't know. 30 years of publishing experience? Yeah, so quite a lot. A lot. Yeah, a lot. yeah, exactly. And we're telling you what we've learned and seen so that you can make things easy for yourself rather than tearing your hair out. Crying. <laughs> we, want to, <laughs> or crying. we want to save you tears and frustration and from throwing things. And swearing. Yes, lots, lots of swearing. <laughs> There's absolutely a time and a place for great interior design, but the pre-editing stage is not it. Save yourself the bother and keep it simple. So now it's time for Editing Bytes. This is the regular part of the show where we each offer you a recommended tool or resource. So, Denise, what have you got for us this week? OK, mine is How to Market a Book by Joanna Penn. I am so in awe of her, especially when I discovered that she's achieved so much in only 10 years. She's really? A yeah, yeah. She's a best-selling author. She's worth millions. But in 2008, she had nothing. No book sales, no audience, no website, no social media, no podcast, no email list, nothing. So this book is for both traditional and indie authors who want to sell more books and or create long-term income it's a great resource from someone who's done the work yeah knows her stuff she's yeah. also doing her own audiobooks now doing her, her own narrations I is think. she and, and and i think she might be doing narrations for other people i'm not i'm not sure about that don't quote me but she, you know she, just she something must else just have like you know three hours sleep a night or something like that i know i know <laughs> i know it's just it's just mind-boggling so yeah. impressive yeah um 
But my tool is to help you master Microsoft Word so that it's your friend. Now, our colleague, Adrian Montgomery, is an editorial consultant based in Canada, but who works globally. And I finally, after years, got to meet Adrian at the Toronto SFEP conference in 2018, which was lovely. She's great fun. And um, but a mine of knowledge, too. And she's put together an amazing and affordable online self-study called course called Editing in Word. I wrote a review of it, which I'll put in the show notes, too. And it's not just a book. There are demo video tutorials and checklists and a support website. And it's really just a whisper short of 25 quid. It's an absolute steal. That's totally worth it, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening to the Editing Podcast. You can rate, review and subscribe via your podcatcher. And please tell your writer, editor and business friends, basically anyone who writes. You can get in touch with us via the Editing Podcast Facebook page and drop your questions in there too and we'll get back to you. Yeah, and don't forget all the links we've mentioned are in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.